Well, brothers and sisters, we return again to the story of Elijah, and we are now at 1 Kings 18, 1 through 19. So follow along as I read this passage of the Word of God. After many days, the Word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Elijah to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go, Tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread? and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit working with us and in us, open up to us uh, how this word testifies of you and your working in history uh, to uh, seek the return of apostate Israel uh, away from the paganism of Baal worship to the worship of you, the true and living God. And may this passage also remind us, Lord, 
that you especially revealed in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek and save those who are lost. Enable us then to worship you even as we listen to your word, to give you the glory, to be strengthened and edified. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning uh, with something that the Apostle Paul has written in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. There Paul says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now, I, I begin here because I think there's a very important takeaway out of that one verse. In troubled times... We come to God's word to instruct us, to remind us how to live and how to have hope. And then Paul says that hope is ultimately this, quoting from from Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13, where he writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we can conclude from this that in this present age, we are to live godly and self-controlled lives, grounded in the ultimate hope of Christ's return, and gaining then our full salvation in him. With this perspective, that is why this this series, which has been about paganism, essentially says this, that even if in our day and age we find that paganism has eclipsed biblical truth in our culture, Western culture, the United States culture, even living in the Bible Belt, (laughs) Bible Belt culture, the call to believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And Scripture has the power to enable us to do that. Scripture has the power to give us hope. Because again and again, as we come to God's Word, we are instructed and grounded in who God is and what God has done for His people and reminded that in the midst of whatever might be going on, we are still to be the people of God and to do what the people of God are supposed to do. Now, that is also why a particular theme has captured time and again uh, these different stories of Elijah and what these stories are essentially about. And so the particular theme for this message, as it has been for several messages, can be stated this way, that God does what he does with us, for us, and to us in order to require of our faith in him that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Which is to say, the stories about Elijah are stories about God and who God is and what God does for those that he redeems. Now, Something else I want to mention as I begin. When uh, we use terms with reference to Scripture, like this particular story or this particular narrative or this text 
or what this prophetic writer says, or what the scripture says, or what the Bible says, or what this passage in the Bible says. We do so never forgetting who the primary author of scripture happens to be. Again, as Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. So in all these different ways that we can refer properly to the biblical text, we must never forget that we are speaking of and talking about God's own word. Whatever we find in the scriptures, this is the word of God. And now for this passage, 1 Kings 18, 1-19, this part of the story of Elijah is God's word telling us three particular truths about God, three particular truths that reflect this large and primary truth about God, that God is in charge. So first, it's going to tell us about God's governance over the plans that people make. Secondly, it's going to make reference to God's grace. Even though the word grace doesn't appear in the passage, it's obvious that it's showing God's grace toward the person who serves under persecution. And then thirdly, it tells us about God's goals against the apostasy of paganism. So, as we come to this text, we focus upon what this passage is going to show us and teach us about who God is, about who God is on behalf of those he saves. So first, I want us to think about how the story portrays God's governance over all of the plans that people make. We see this in this particular historical narrative because it shows us something that we might call a divine coincidence. Elijah is heading back into Israel under God's command. And lo and behold, he meets Obadiah, God's faithful prophet, Obadiah, who serves as Ahab's chief administrator. But think about the word coincidence. Coincidence, two events which come together and happen simultaneously in a notable way, in, in a remarkable way, out of an ordinary way, because they seemingly have no causal connection between them. And at the human level, that means there's no human contrivance, that what happens is not part of some human planning. And in this sense, we have a coincidence in Elijah and Obadiah meeting. And think about the backstory of this coincidence. It begins in verse 1. God commissions Elijah to return to Israel and to show himself to Ahab. And then we have in verse 5, Ahab directs Obadiah to seek out water. Ahab has all of the land of Israel, the northern kingdom, all of the land of Samaria to survey. So he divides up the search. He decides to go in one direction, verse 6. So Obadiah uh, is ha has to go in the other direction. And verse 7 then is the result. And as Obadiah was on his way, Elijah met him. Now, in every way that we define a coincidence, this is a coincidence. At the human level, there is no contrivance to have Elijah the prophet meet with this faithful believer, Obadiah. And this coincidence is remarkable because it's of great importance. 
for the next stage of God's work through Elijah. But the question is this. Should we call this event a divine coincidence? Given the actual meaning of the word coincidence, can we truly speak of a divine coincidence? Or is the idea of a divine coincidence actually an oxymoron? Now, we all know what oxymorons are. They're figures of speech. They are expressions that seemingly puts together two things that are incompatible or two things that are contradictory or two things that in some way stand in opposition to each other. We use them all the time. We say things like, it was a small crowd that turned up. Oh, yeah, that's old news. Well, it's an open secret <laughs> as to what took place. Uh, they were no better off than the living dead. Could you believe the deafening silence that happened after he spoke? Um, look, youngster, this is your only choice. Wow, that was pretty ugly. Hmm, that was awfully good. How close were you? Almost exactly. What does that mean? Well, it's the same difference. What are you going to order? Jumble shrimp. <laughs> How did that salad taste? Uh, bittersweet. So why would we put, why would we consider, why would we think that divine coincidence is an oxymoron? Because we have put together two ideas that are seemingly incompatible or in some sense stand in a kind of opposition to each other. When a coincidence happens, it is remarkable because no one has planned for it to occur. Except that a divine coincidence means that God has most certainly planned for this to occur. In fact, the Bible consistently teaches us that in God's relationship to all of his creation, there are no accidental happenings, no unplanned events, no true coincidences. All things happen according to God's governance over all of his creation, including all of the plans and the decisions that people make. What we truly mean when we see a divine coincidence is simply a remarkable instance of God's providence. So when Ahab decides to go in one direction and sends Obadiah in the other direction, and when Elijah sets out on his course back towards Samaria, and when Obadiah has before him dozens of different roads and dozens of different paths and dozens of different places that needs to go to in order to survey all this assigned territory, and when Elijah and Obadiah wind up on exactly the same path and meet, this is the writer of Scripture showing us that God governs all of the plans that people make. God is truly God. And his providence rules over all of the affairs of men. Now, the New Testament makes this clear as a core doctrinal truth about God. And as that which has profound practical implications and application. Listen to how Jesus teaches this. Matthew chapter 10, 29, 30, 31. Jesus says to his disciples, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground 
apart from your father. And even the heads of your hair are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, Jesus is telling us that if God so controls the affairs of this earthly life that even sparrows do not fall to the ground apart from the direct providential working of God, and if the very hairs of our heads are numbered and known to God, then we should not fear the events and circumstances and affairs of life. For God governs all his creatures and all their actions. And we are of far greater value than sparrows. Now, we can say that, and we know that that's a very important statement, but yes, we do respond to the way things are going on often with fear. I mean, for us Americans, there's nothing like a struggling economy and a dangerous war in Europe to cause us to be terribly anxious. I was on the phone Friday uh, talking with a young man there in California, a man that I meet with regularly uh, by phone, mentoring him. And as we were talking, he says, yeah, Randy, the first thing I do when I wake up each morning is to look at my phone app at the uh, NASDAQ activity. And then he paused, he said, when I should be looking at my Bible app and I should be reading God's word. And my response was, right. Because we need to be wholly anchored in what God has told us about himself and about what God tells us about. He governs all of the plans of all of the people throughout all of the world, throughout all of history. Because scripture has told us that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And if God is for us, nothing can truly stand against us. And that nothing in all creation can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God governs all the plans that people make. Now, the second thing that we find the writer talking about here is really Obadiah. And in speaking about Obadiah, he gives us an example of God's grace toward the person who serves faithfully under persecution. So right away in verses 3 and 4, we have a brief synopsis of who Obadiah is and what he's done, and also why he's important. First, we see he's a secret believer within Ahab's official household, even while holding the top spot over Ahab's household. He's the chief domestic administrator. Uh, we could compare him uh, in terms of how Daniel was to Nebuchadnezzar, or we might think about how Joseph was first to Potiphar, and then how Joseph was to Pharaoh. Second in command over civilian affairs. Not over the military, simply civilian affairs. So Obadiah is the highest civilian official in the administration of Ahab. The second thing we read is that Obadiah fears the Lord greatly. And that fear of the Lord translated into faithfulness to God so that uh, that faithfulness to God and that fear of the Lord consistently guides Obadiah's secret service with respect to the true God because he has secretly saved 
many of the prophets of the Lord from Queen Jezebel in her attempts to exterminate all of the spiritual leadership in Israel, all of those men who were faithful to God. And so the writer tells us that Obadiah had hidden two groups of 50 of prophets and fed them bread and water, which is also Obadiah's own testimony to Elijah as he speaks to Elijah in verse 13. And, and now a word of explanation about these prophets. Why was this so significant? Why was this so important? Well, these are men of God. These are men who are endowed by the Spirit of God to be faithful teachers and interpreters of the Word of God, especially the law of God. You see, 60 years earlier, the kingdom split. Uh, the northern kingdom and the northern tribes lost all of their faithful Levites, they lost all the priests who were descended from Aaron because all of the Levites and all of the priests, Aaronic priesthood, they migrated from the north to the southern kingdom so that they might continue to minister with respect to the temple and the true worship of God. Because of their absence, that is because of the absence of the Levites, because of the absence of the priests of Aaron, God raised up in the northern kingdom those men especially endowed by his spirit to be able to teach the people about God, to teach people about the word of God. God especially raised them up in the midst of paganism, the paganism that was being promoted and enforced. Now, from a contemporary perspective, we could see these men as most like those pastors in the world today who lead and teach in the underground churches in mainland China, in North Korea, in Cambodia, Laos, Middle East, Iran, so many places in sub-Sahara Africa. They have to have secret ministries because just like Jezebel specifically hunted down to kill the Lord's prophets, these pastors and church leaders are being hunted down, put in prison, and sadly often put to death. Now, over all of these prophets, Obadiah served as a kind of, of bishop. You know, he was like their overseer. But he did so secretly, and he did his best to save their lives in the face of the clear and present danger that Queen Jezebel presented. Obadiah was clearly greatly afraid of Jezebel's power and abilities and determination to find and to kill God's spiritual leaders. Yet, in spite of that fear, he feared God more deeply. He feared God in a far better sense. And therefore, he carried out this faithful and dangerous work of hiding and feeding the Lord's prophets. Thirdly, we also ought to see that Obadiah's work kept Jezebel's work from being successful. Uh, Professor Dale Davis gives us what is really a significant insight. He points out that Obadiah's secret work stands as a, quote, quiet monument to Jezebel's failure, unquote, to publicly wipe out the faithful people, and the faithful leaders of God. Although it looks like the pagan worship of Baal and Asher are going to dominate because that's the public perception, Obadiah's work is cracking the foundations that Jezebel keeps trying to establish. 
And that's why we ought to understand that there's great significance in that work of Christians today who must remain hidden, who must remain absent from public view because of the present and dangerous reality of death. Fourthly, we read also here about Obadiah. He doesn't want to die. Uh, You know, this is clear from his dialogue with Elijah in verses 8 through 15. He is so afraid that if he reports to King Ahab that Elijah is there to meet him, that the Spirit of God is going to whisk Elijah away somewhere, and, and Ahab's going to be so upset that he's going to put Obadiah to death. So he wants the strongest reassurances that Elijah will truly appear that day. Now, we've got to draw the right conclusion and the right understanding from Obadiah's statement of fear and his obvious desire to live. When a man of great fear who does not want to die will risk his life again and again to serve the Lord's prophets, to take care of them, knowing that Jezebel would kill him in an instant if she knew, we are seeing a truly godly and brave man in whom the grace of God is greatly at work. No one this fearful, no one who draws back so so strongly from death who nevertheless does death-defying deeds in service of the Lord, is anything other than a clear example of the power of the grace of God greatly at work. In the last two decades especially, people have shared with me that hearing about the persecution of Christians throughout the world, and as that becomes more evident and more evident, and more evident how they feel ashamed of themselves because of their fear with respect to persecution and of their fear of dying. And I would say to any of us like that, look at Obadiah, a man of great fear, and then look at God who worked greatly in him in spite of Obadiah's fearfulness, and then we should take heart. It's not our fear that we should focus on, but the greatness of God's grace that can enable us who fearfully do not want to die, and yet God himself may choose to work in us as he did in Obadiah in credible ways. God's grace manifest in the life of Obadiah under persecution. Now, the fifth thing we see, Obadiah's work is also presented as a complement to that of Elijah. You know, Elijah is clearly God's chief instrument in this, this whole long story of a season of God's work. But Elijah is not the only way God works. He's not the only kind of person that God uses. And Professor Davis is helpful here once again. He says, Obadiah is obviously very different from Elijah. 
Elijah's ministry is more public, confrontational. Obadiah works quietly in behind-the-scenes fashion, and yet is faithful in the sphere that God has placed him. The Bible never tells us that there's only one kind of faithful servant. It never demands that you must be an Elijah clone. Models are helpful, but the slavish imitation of them is foolish. Now that is an encouragement to any of us who are anything but like Elijah. God can use us. And then lastly, uh, the writer gives us the setup leading to the showdown on Mount Carmel. That is to say, the writer gives us God's goals against the apostasy of paganism. So let's read 17 to 18 again. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mark. Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asher, who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, we see the main purposes and goals that are being set up with respect to Mount Carmel. What is God intending to do? First of all, we see this in terms of the demonstration of who actually is the troubler. Of Israel. You know, Ahab has this as the first thing out of his mouth. This accusation against Elijah is that you, you troubler of Israel. Now, three years earlier, Elijah had been very clear that the coming drought, the absence of rain, was by the command of the true God of Israel. Because back in 1 Kings 17 1, Elijah has said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, these words were not cryptic. Elijah told Ahab that the rain would cease by the decree of the true and real God of Israel. But it's a clear indication of Ahab's spiritual blindness and deadness to his own sin that ignores the clear spiritual realities of what has happened. And he places all of the blame on Elijah. And this is ever the case with wicked and unregenerate people. They refuse to see themselves as the problem. They refuse to take responsibility for their own sin. Now, Elijah is immediately ready with the truth. And he lays out what has truly troubled Israel. He says, not I, but you have troubled Israel. You and your father's house, because you have abandoned, you have forsaken the commandments of the true God of Israel to go after the Baals. In other words, it is your spiritual apostasy and that of your father and father's household. It is your rejection of the true God and his commands. It is your wicked spiritual leadership leading the people into idolatry that has troubled Israel. So Elijah lays out God's first goal. It is to put the blame for the nation's troubles exactly where it truly exists. 
God is holding Ahab responsible for leading Israel into pagan apostasy. But there's a second goal as well. And it is to thoroughly discredit Baal worship and to fully show that Yahweh, Yahweh God, is the true God of Israel. God has withheld reign to show that Baal lacks the power. Baal lacks any of this reality that is claimed about him. But that is not what the prophets of Baal would have been teaching the people of Israel over these past three years. It is uniformly the case in ancient paganism that when bad things happen to the worshipers of a particular deity, it is because, claimed, that deity is displeased. His or her followers are out of favor with the deity. So we can properly assume that the prophets of Baal have been saying something like this to the people of Israel. Before the rain ceased, we were not faithful enough to Baal. Our, our worship of him was not sufficient. We displeased Baal. We did not honor him enough. But now the rain has returned. So all we have done for Baal during these past years, we have regained his favor. That would have been the narrative. If God simply sends rain after three years, that will be the pagan narrative. So Baal must be taken down as far as possible. He must be discredited in a face-off of power against power. And then God has a third goal here. The face-off is going to be entirely upon God's set terms. In this conversation with Ahab, Elijah has taken full control. And it's Elijah who sets the terms for this show, showdown. No, it's actually God through Elijah who sets the terms for this showdown. Even though Ahab is king over all of Israel, it is God's servant who stands in the presence of the Lord who sets the terms. Elijah speaks. Ahab obeys. Better yet, God speaks through Elijah. And Ahab has no power or choice but to obey. God's sovereignty is demonstrated in the remarkable set of terms that sets up this showdown. God is in charge. And that is what this passage of God's word most significantly teaches. That God does what he does with us, for us, and to us. In order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those that he saves which is teaching, which are lessons we need to take continually to heart. Because we live in a very troubled world. But we must remember, God governs all the plans that people make. And we see in this very ungodly world that the people of God are persecuted. Yet we also must know that God gives grace to his people in need. Because it's always been true that God's people are a central part of God's purposes and goals 
in all of his powerful demonstration against the paganism and the fallenness of the world. God's people are those who testify again and again that the one true God is the true God. And this purpose of God was that which was first proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. No sooner had our first parents fallen under the power and control of the adversary than God promised that the seed of the woman would come to crush the serpent's head because God is in charge. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we would pray that as we think about, know about, learn about, and even through all sorts of avenues of seeing the news, see the trouble that this world is in, that it might be our deep and constant prayer that we would honor you as the God who's truly in charge and that you would enable us to be faithful Obadiahs where it's necessary to be like an Obadiah and even faithful Elijahs where we need to be like an Elijah, that we would trust you, that your grace will work in us to enable us to be who you want us to be. And that we would have the great confidence that we have a certain hope. The blessed coming and appearing of the Lord Jesus to wrap up all of history in the great consummation that brings in your kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth forevermore. While we still live in this present age, Enable us, Lord, to trust you, to know that your hand is evident, even when we can't even necessarily see it clearly, and to deeply believe that when you are for us, nothing can really stand against us. To know that because you are in charge, all things will work together for our good, because we love you, called according to your purpose. And, and deeply believe that because your grace holds us in an infallible way, nothing that might ever happen in this life and in this world will ever separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Our prayer today, Father, enable us to believe so deeply that you are always in charge. In Christ's name.